You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast, www.savagelovecast.com. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual harmony, well, there's nothing you can't ask on the Savage Lovecast. So Hillary Clinton is the Democratic nominee, but we're not going to talk about that at the top of the show. We're not going to talk about how we're all going to unite behind the Democratic nominee like I always said we would. Like all of you – I made it a condition of listening actually. It was a condition. You only had my consent to listen to my podcast. I said this at least a year ago. If you agreed before the nomination contest was completed to support whoever got the Democratic nomination and now we know who that person is and it is Hillary Clinton. So those of us who were bitanctual all along are now shifting all of our support to Hillary's side. But all of you who were for Bernie, welcome to the Hillary camp. Whether you like it or not, here we are. And I know that everybody who supported Hillary all along would be marching into the Bernie camp had Bernie won because you know what? Everyone who supported Hillary eight years ago marched dutifully into the Obama camp when Hillary lost. So we've seen Hillary supporters do. Hillary supporters, long-term supporters, have already done what Hillary supporters are now asking Bernie supporters to do, which is to support the nominee, even if it ain't your guy or girl, as the case was eight years ago. I want to talk about infidelity. I want to talk about cheating spouses, which is probably something that's going to come up a bit over the course of the general election campaign here in the United States because Donald Trump insists he's going to make it an issue. But I don't want to talk about Bill and Hillary aspect of marital infidelity. I want to talk about gender equality and that aspect of marital infidelity. A few years ago, actually quite a few years ago, 12 or 15 years ago, I think I was on Real Time with Bill Maher and we were talking about cheating. We were talking about infidelity and I pointed out that lesbian relationships were the most likely to be quote-unquote successfully monogamous, followed by straight relationships, a little less likely or a lot less likely than lesbian relationships to be quote-unquote successfully monogamous, followed by gay male relationships, which were the least likely to be successfully monogamous or, as I like to say, the most likely to be successfully not monogamous. And I pointed out to Bill and the rest of the panel that if you think – Infidelity is a problem that it's clear that men are the problem because men are likelier to cheat. Hence, lesbian relationships least likely to be touched by infidelity, straight relationships more, there's a man there, and gay relationships most because there are two men there. But more and more social science is coming in, more and more studies are coming in showing that women are gaining on men, that women, married women, are almost as likely now to cheat as married men. That we are achieving near parity and we will probably achieve parity soon. So what we used to frame as something women wouldn't do or didn't want to do, cheat on their spouses, was actually something women we now know and the research is bearing out, women couldn't risk doing. Oh, they wanted to, but they couldn't because, well, male violence, which is still a risk and still a problem, but – as we can see now, as the research is showing now, this is why I want to retract the statement I made on Mar 15 years ago. Men weren't the problem. Humans are the problem when it comes to monogamy. And the reason women cheated less or were less likely to cheat was because cheating risked impoverishment. That cheating for women came bundled with other risks besides just divorce 
risk of violence still comes with that risk. The risk of impoverishment, what they're showing, what the research is showing, that is as women enter the workforce, as women, many of them now begin to make as much or more money than their male partners, heterosexual women or bisexual women in opposite sex relationships, they are as likely to cheat as men in those relationships because they feel empowered as men had always felt empowered. Not to cheat. I don't think people should feel empowered to cheat, but empowered to take that risk because if worse came to worse, they would only maybe be facing divorce if they couldn't work through it. They wouldn't be facing the slut label necessarily and they wouldn't be facing economic devastation, which was really what kept women in line in a lot of long-term relationships, what kept women from cheating. More evidence, I think, not that we fail at monogamy – strict monogamy, but that monogamy fails us because when people have the means and the ability, they will cheat. And as other research shows, it's not that they're cheating because they're unhappy or not in love with their partners. People cheat for all sorts of reasons and sometimes people cheat on people that they love and do not wish to leave. And so, circling back to a point that I've made a million times that I believe is still operative, withdrawing my point in the past that men were the problem with monogamy. Clearly not men are not the problem. We all, all of us are the problem with monogamy, which is a good indication that maybe if we're all the problem with monogamy, maybe monogamy is the problem actually that we all have or the way we approach and understand it. So this is a very long and circuitous circle back to the point I want to make that is still operative, unlike the one I have just withdrawn, is that we need to understand infidelity differently. We need to understand monogamy a bit differently. Something we strive for in a committed monogamous relationship, but many of us, or most of us, or most relationships will fall short of. And knowing that, maybe it would be a good idea, and you can all chant this along with me, if we stop defining an infidelity as a relationship extinction level event. Knowing that it almost inevitably will happen, and knowing as women are increasingly empowered, making their own money, making as much or more money than men, to risk it too, maybe now's the time to stop inflating monogamy to the greatest of all betrayals. So remember, as we hear a lot about what a dog Bill was and how he cheated on Hillary 20, 30, 40 years ago, that if Hillary had been making as much money as Bill then, if Hillary had been governor of Arkansas then, she would have been as likely to cheat on him as he was to cheat on her. And coming up in the Magnum edition of the Savage Lovecast, we have queer icon drag queen Panty Bliss straight from Dublin today on the show. Hey, Dan. So I've been hanging out in the deepest, darkest corner of my closet for probably about 13 or 14 years now. I'm, I'm in my early 20s. I've been living with my parents for a while for financial reasons, and I live in a rural conservative area, but I have plans to finally move to a more liberal metropolitan area later on this year. It's not super far away from where I am now, but it's far enough that my parents won't be very involved in my life. So my question is, after I move, do I really, do I really need to come out to my parents? It seems like coming out is always a part of every gay person's story. And I've been thinking about it a lot. And personally, I can't come up with a single reason that my life would be better having told them. It's not going to be like the coming out stories in every freaking TV show and movie now. It's not going to be like where the gay kid is nervous about coming out and then his parents are all loving and accepting and, oh, nothing's changed. We still love you. I'm sick. God, I'm sick of that shit because 
there is a 0% chance that's going to happen to me. My parents are fundamentalists, evangelical Christians. I've been raised in that my whole life. And if I tell them it's going to ruin our relationship, I mean, they'll make it about them. They'll make it about how much it hurts them, how it's going to affect people's perceptions of them as parents and as Christians. It's all going to be about them. And I mean, the best case scenario, I think, is that they're, maybe they'll continue speaking to me, but they'll keep bringing up, you know, confessing sins and asking for God's forgiveness every five minutes. So anyway, I, I'm sure there must be a positive aspect to coming out because people keep doing it. But could, could you help me understand what those positives are? I'm trying to figure this out on my own. I can't talk to anybody about this. I really, I really have no idea what I'm doing when it comes to this, this part of my life. The first thing I want to tell you to do is dig through the archives of the Savage Lovecast and go find all the episodes that Aaron Hartzler, he's a YA author and actor. He wrote Rapture Practice, a terrific book about a queer kid, about a gay boy, realizing he's gay as he grows up in a deeply conservative evangelical Christian household. And I've invited Aaron on the show a couple of times to chat with guys like you, guys who have right-wing, fundamentalist, evangelical parents that they fear coming out to. Aaron was on the show last in uh, episode 494. So go listen to that. In addition to listening to everything else I'm about to say to you, the coming out experience or the reception that you dread used to be the, the reception gay people anticipated. It, the soft focus, we still love you, nothing's changed. That 30, 40 years ago was the aberration, not the norm. And it's presented now in a lot of media, including media I have been involved with, as the norm, as what a young gay person can expect when they come out to their families. It isn't a universal experience. I think it is increasingly perhaps the plurality of the gay experience of coming out, that families try to do right by their kids and try to love them and struggle to accept as opposed to instantly reject, but there are still queer kids out there, trans kids out there who are rejected by their families and pretty cruelly when they come out to them. So you are not alone in this fear. It used to be what we all feared. It used to be what almost invariably we all got when we came out, but that has changed. In addition to listening to uh, episode 494 and other episodes of Love Cats with Aaron Hartzler on them, I would encourage you to read Armistead Maupin's Tales of the City books because there's a gay character named Mouse in the Tales of the City books who is not out to his parents back at home who are conservative and he hosts them. They come to San Francisco to visit him where he is living an out gay life in the 70s and he hides his sexuality and he hides his friends and he hides and as soon as they leave, as soon as they go home, he realizes that he can't hide this shit. He can't hide himself, this shit. He can't hide himself, the truth about himself from his parents anymore. And he writes them a heartbreaking letter and sends it. And God, you just have to read the book, Armistead Maupin, Tales of the City. And the expectation that this character has, that Mouse has, that so many gay men of his generation who actually existed or were coming out at the time had, was that he would never hear from his parents again, that they would reject him. And it was sort of a, this is who I am. It was nice to know you goodbye letter with a little hope at the end that maybe they could one day accept this. So you're not alone in this experience. You might want to reach out to some 
gay and lesbian elders, in addition to this old faggot, to put your problem in perspective because your fears will be familiar to them. Your fears used to be universal. Now, I'm backing into actually answering your questions. Do you really need to come out to your parents? No, actually, you really don't. You can move away, you can run away, and you can wait them out and hope they drop dead before they ever discover the truth about you. But when you say you can't think of a single reason to come out to your parents, I can think of lots of reasons to come out to your parents, even if they're going to have a bad reaction, even if you're never going to hear from them again, or every time you do hear from them, it's garbage. They could change. They could come around. Coming out to them proactively instead of waiting for them to figure it out or discover it, we do live in a digital age. Presumably your parents are online. Hiding your sexuality from them means policing your Facebook page, your online presence, anything anybody else might say or write about you online. It's going to be exhausting. You know, once you're out yourself and out to others, controlling how far that information gets is going to make you paranoid. Policing that information about yourself, trying to keep it from ever reaching your parents, that's an effort that's going to exhaust you in the end. And in the end, what do you get by not coming out to your parents? You fear that coming out to your parents means you're going to destroy your relationship or not have a decent relationship with them. But never telling them ensures that you will have no relationship with your parents because the only way to keep this information from your parents over the next, how long are they going to live? Three, four decades is to wall them out of your life. For fear of their rejection, you must reject them. For fear that they will cast you out, you have to cast them out. And what do you get in the end? You get the same goddamn thing. You have no relationship with your parents. That's what you said you feared. You feared if you came out to them, you would have no relationship with them. Not coming out to them ensures that you will have no relationship with them or a relationship that's so compromised and awkward and untruthful that it's as much as having no relationship with them at all. Because you won't be interacting with your parents. You will be tap dancing around them, avoiding them, ducking and weaving and bobbing and self-censoring and editing yourself for three or four decades. It's exhausting. And in the end, what are you preserving? A relationship with two people who, at least right now, despise you or would despise you if they knew you? Is that something worth fighting to preserve? I don't think so. You will one day be without your parents. It is the natural order of things. Should you outlive your parents? And I hope that you do. I hope all children outlive their parents. No parent should ever have to bury a child. So if you lose them before they actually die... You're in no different place, really, than if you should lose them to death, except you have to shoulder the rejection that you fear. And I'm here from the future to tell you that there are a lot of people out there, a lot of gay, lesbian, bi, and trans adults who came out to evangelical, fundy Christian parents who said all sorts of shitty things about queer people in front of them for years, who maybe after a year or two of throwing a fucking fit came around. Your parents can't come around on this issue, also known as you, their flesh and blood, their son, until you tell them, until they know. You may come out to them and get 
absolutely the reaction you fear. Bible verses and screaming and yelling and crying and condemnation. You may have to endure that crucible. Before the tantrum ends, before you can get to acceptance, before they exhaust themselves, futilely trying to leverage you back into the closet somehow. A lot of people's parents throw tantrums when they come out. Final bit of advice, and you'll hear this, I'm sure, if you go back through the archives and listen to me speaking with Aaron about others in your situation, my standard advice for queer kids who are coming out to their parents, and you need to hear it, so even if you've heard it before, I'm going to repeat it, right now you fear their rejection. You need to go in there if and when you come out to them, making them fear your rejection. Don't cower. If they reject you, You've been fired from a job you hated. You got kicked out of an apartment you could no longer live in or bear to live in. If losing your parents, losing contact with them is the price you have to pay to be who you are and to live and to love, that is a price that millions of gay men before you have paid. And millions of those gay men, hundreds of thousands of them, paid that price, rejected by their families, only to see... A year later, two years later, five years later, in the case of my first boyfriend, 15 years later, to see their parents finally and ultimately come around and love and accept them. But you can't get to that love and acceptance if you aren't willing to pass through the fire first. Also something to consider, you're moving away to a more liberal area, presumably to have a gay life, to date people, to have relationships, to maybe have a partner if a partner is something that you want. You are a much less desirable boyfriend or husband while you are closeted to your family because the person that you end up with, the person you wind up dating or the people you wind up dating, most of them aren't going to put up with having to hide when mommy and daddy come to town or having to be absolutely silent when you're on the phone with your parents or having to never include a photo of you with them on Instagram or Facebook. Because to be in a relationship with a closet case is to be dragged back into the closet yourself. And most out-of-the-closet adult gay and bi men are not willing to be closeted anymore for anyone for any reason. Most, almost all, are not willing to be closeted to have that particular boyfriend. That price is too high. The emotional price is too high. These days, people march out of the closet for once and for good and forever. And if the price they have to pay to be with you is to be closeted again, you're going to have a hard time finding that boyfriend or finding that partner or finding that husband that you may want. A husband, a boyfriend, a partner, partners, boyfriends, they are your present and they are your future. Your parents are your past. You should be willing to sacrifice your past for your future. Hey, Dan. I am a 30-some-year-old female living in Big City on the East Coast. And I have found out that my long-term boyfriend of about seven or eight years uh, signed up for a sex app. He said that he was just looking and says that it is not a betrayal. I think that signing up for a sex app or a sex site is a betrayal. He said to call you and see what you think. Um, I'm calling you. Well, gee, you're talking to the guy who doesn't think Cheating on someone is necessarily in all cases a betrayal. So just laying my biases out there at the start. You don't say what kind of sex app he signed up for. Was it a dating app? Was it Tinder? People like to look around. 
people like to flirt. Just because someone has an ad up on Craigslist or is looking at the ads on Craigslist or looking at the ads on Grindr or Tinder or Match.com or OkCupid, just because somebody's looking around doesn't mean that they intend to cheat, have cheated, are making plans to cheat. I guess it's the same thing as intended to cheat. It could just mean that they are checking it out or they just want to feel desirable. Sometimes people post as because they want to get some positive strokes. They want their ego to be fed, not their holes necessarily or their dicks, right? I can't tell you for sure what your boyfriend's intentions were. Maybe he joined that sex app because he was thinking about cheating on you. Or maybe he joined that sex app because he wanted to look around and maybe if he'd looked around enough, he may have run into somebody and then been sorely tempted. But you're in the room with him. You can assess his demeanor. You know whether he's a good actor or liar or not. What do you think? Do you think his intent was to betray or do you think his intent was just to scope? You have this digital trail now. We all have these digital trails now. We all leave these digital trails. We're all able to check up on things that in the past we never would have been able to check up on. If your boyfriend every once in a while on the way home from work or after work stopped in some bar near his office that where people got flirty and occasionally I banged some girl or even flirted with a girl or had a drink with a girl and then left and came home to you and was completely faithful to you. But for that relatively innocent, life-affirming, hotness-affirming, ego-stroking, quote-unquote betrayal, you would never know. You would never be privy to it. He could have this little private erotic interaction and you would be none the wiser, but he joined a sex app. It's on its phone. Presumably you snooped or he left it open and you found it. And so now you know something that 20 years ago you never would have known unless somebody ratted your boyfriend out to you because they saw him in a bar having a drink with some woman. Those interactions are often harmless. People want to feel alive. People want to feel desired and not just desired by the person whose job it is to desire them. In some ways, flirting with somebody else who doesn't have to flirt with you, who doesn't have to fuck you, who doesn't have to tell you you're hot, it affirms what you're hearing from your long-term partner. You hear it from your long-term partner and you're like, part of you is like, yeah, but you have to say that. You're going to say that. Whether it's true or not, whether you feel that way or not, whether I'm actually still hot or not, it's your job to say that shit to me. Sometimes hearing that from someone who's not your partner, who's not their job to say that shit to you, it helps you to believe your partner when your partner says that shit to you. So it redounds to your benefit potentially if he gets out there and gets his flirt on every once in a while, virtually, digitally, or in real life. Because that affirmation that he's getting is not just an affirmation of his own hotness, but an affirmation of everything that you've been telling him, presumably about desiring him. But only he knows what his true intentions were. Maybe he was at seven or eight years seriously thinking about fucking someone else. And maybe that's as far as it went. Maybe he thought about it. Have you ever thought about fucking somebody else? Have you ever flirted with a guy at the gym? Have you ever flirted with a guy at work? Have you ever flirted with a guy in a bar? Have you ever flirted with a guy at an airport or on an airplane? Have you ever been on vacation without him? Flirted with somebody? Have you ever thought about fucking somebody else at seven or eight years? I bet you 
have. I would be shocked if you hadn't. But just because you thought about it or contemplated it or even took one step in the direction of it, it doesn't mean that you were going to do it. It doesn't mean that you weren't going to at some point come to your senses and turn back or didn't if you've been in all those situations. If he says that he had no intention and you choose to stay with him, you're going to have to choose to believe him. Refrain from shaming him about it. Refrain from policing his every action. Not have meltdowns about it. And keep the snooping to a respectful minimum. Hi, Dan. I am a 25-year-old female living on the West Coast. I don't know if I'm calling you with a question as much as just like a statement that's something I'm dealing with sexually. Like, I just love to fuck strangers. Like, I love the anonymous aspect of it. But in the past, it's definitely gotten me into trouble. And for that reason, it's something I don't currently do. Um, I'm in a relationship and have been for the last few years, and we are monogamous, and I've not gone outside my relationship, but in the last six months, I feel this, like, burning desire towards, like, what I used to go after, and I don't feel like I'm planning on doing so, but the desire is still there, and I don't know if it's something I'm missing or if it's just this dull urge to want to do something that I guess I miss doing sometimes. Anyways, um, I don't know. I'd just like to know your thoughts. I'm sure I'm not the only one out there feeling this way. I just really like the insight because I feel like it never leaves my mind for a very long period of time. I want to say it's natural, but it's not natural at all. It's typical to examine your issues through the frame of moral judgment, right? You want to fuck strangers. There's something wrong with that. Maybe you're into it because it's transgressive or it's taboo or it's dangerous or it's risky and that's what excites you about it and that's a problem and we have to solve that problem so you can have a stable monogamous relationship that's safe and cuddly all your life and we need to figure out what's at root here, what the, the root cause of this troublesome, irksome desire of yours is so we can pull it out by that root and free you from this. And I sit here thinking, I'm listening to your call and I'm just thinking about what we know now about birds, birds that nest together, birds we used to think were monogamous pairs. And what we know now about those birds is there's the bird you share the nest with and then most of the birds, most of the female birds, zip off every once in a while and fuck some strange goddamn bird, some bird they're never going to see ever again. They get some strange bird dick and then they fly back home to stable Mr. Monogamy bird that they're going to sit on eggs with and bring back worms and grubs with and hatch these hatchlings with. But they're getting two different things from two different people. Two different things, sorry, from two different birds or dinosaurs, depending on your perspective on birds. They're getting stable, home life, monogamy, commitment, egg sitting with this bird and they're getting excitement, perhaps superior DNA, life with some rando birds, some stranger birds they're never going to see ever again. So who knows what's up with you? Maybe it is transgressive. Maybe it is a problem. Or maybe you're just one of them goddamn birds. We don't actually understand everything about human sexuality. And we are we share common ancestors with all these other animals, some of which behave in ways that are very similar to us sexually. And some of us behave in ways that are similar to some of them sexually. And how do you tease that out? How do you tease out what is culture or mental illness or self-destructive impulse and what is 
a naturally occurring in the best of all possible world, not a hundred percent safe or always harmless desire or impulse or act, but an act that can be a desire that can be realized somewhat safely. And in the context of a committed relationship, consensually, you're in a committed monogamous relationship. You have this longstanding desire to fuck a stranger every once in a while. What do you do with that? Well, if your partner isn't open to an open relationship of some sort, you have to repress and sublimate that desire for the rest of your life or the rest of the life of this relationship. Doesn't mean you can't still indulge in fantasy. Doesn't mean you can't turn off all the lights and pretend he's a stranger. If you have the kind of relationship where you can be honest with each other about your desires, even if you can't get his buy off to fuck somebody else every once in a while, to be able to share with him that you have this strong desire to fuck somebody else every once in a while and a stranger, if he's aware of your past and doesn't see it necessarily as a problem or an indictment, he could play up the stranger. This can be role play that you guys both engage in together where he cranks you up by pretending to be someone he's not, which is what people do when they pretend to be someone's baby or someone's dog or someone's master or whatever the fuck. People pretend and it's exciting and it's playful. So maybe he can help you scratch this itch with some role play. Or if he's interested in an open relationship, and there are a lot of guys out there in monogamous relationships who are would prefer to be in an open relationship, but they don't know how to broach that subject because they assume, perhaps correctly, that most women don't want to be in an open relationship or haven't given non-monogamy a thought and will freak out if he's the one who broaches the subject. But if you go to him and you are able to be honest with him about your fantasies, your desires, your sexual history, you may find a way in a relationship with him or in your next relationship to have your partner, like the bird has the bird in the nest, and have the stranger too. And perhaps the stranger more safely, because if you want it to be someone you've never seen again and will never see again, and you have a partner who is excited by that or into that or open to that, he can make those arrangements. He can, and many people in hot wife or cuckolding relationships do, he can do the vetting. He can run interference. He can line up a guy for you that you can then accept or reject in the moment. You don't have to go through with it. And he can know their names, know their phone numbers, have a conversation with them about consent, get a feel for whether they're going to be safe and respectful and fun and hot and sexy too. And then you can, you say that in the past there were times when it was risky or it was dangerous or shit went down. You may be able with the right partner or even with this partner to have him and have them with his help. Hi, Dan. I'm a 28-year-old straight single mom with two little boys that are eight and nine. We left their abusive father in 08 and with the newer laws in Florida regarding domestic violence history, uh, it plays no part in the child custody agreement. And so now he has them about 35% of the time. Before we left, I had brought it up that, you know, what would happen if one of our children were gay and his exact words were that he would beat them straight. Recently, my ex's new fiance had her uncle and his boyfriend over and he called me up and told me he needed to meet them, meet me earlier to pick up the boys. Just so like, of course, like I always do, 
I met him early. When we met, he told me that he didn't want the boys around gay people. I asked my children to get in the car and told him that I wouldn't allow his bigoted, womanizing ways to be pushed on our children. I told him that he doesn't know if one of them could be gay. And he said, like he did before, that you know, he would beat them straight or get them a hooker. And that would help make them straight. And I told him that they could be born that way and he wouldn't have a say in it. And he said there was a say. So there was no point in arguing and we left. But my youngest son is my dancer, my making Broadway signs and all the girls are at school are his best friends forever. His dad's accusing me all the time of trying to make him gay. I don't know what to do as far as hoping that my son can come and talk to me, which I've always made very clear, but I don't know how that would work with their father at the other end always pushing them. Is there anything that you can think of that would help? Your younger son is most likely gay. Not all adult gay men were little dancers and into Broadway and BFFs with all the girls when they were little boys, but almost all little boys who are little dancers and into Broadway and BFFs with all the girls grow up one day to be gay men when they're adults. So the odds are really, really high that your younger son is going to be gay and his homosexuality, his gayness is going to continue to manifest and it's going to surface in more and more ways that are more and more obvious and he's going to feel more and more conflicted and potentially wind up being targeted for violence by this man who targeted you for violence. You say there was a history of domestic violence here and fuck Florida if a history of domestic violence has no bearing in child custody cases because someone who says they're going to beat the gay out of a child shouldn't be allowed to have any children, access to any children, even if the children they have access to are straight. But for that person to be parenting 35% of the time, a boy who in all likelihood is going to be gay, not when he grows up, who's gay now and probably is aware, has a dawning awareness that he is gay now, is criminal. Beat the gay out of a kid. You can't beat the gay out of a kid. You can beat the life out of a kid. Not that he would beat him to death right then and right there, but beat a kid because he's a gay kid, that kid may destroy, take his own life down the road. And if that kid somehow comes out of that, loving himself and whole, The only thing your husband, your ex-husband will have succeeded in destroying by beating that kid because he's gay is his relationship with that kid as an adult because that kid will have nothing to do with his father as an adult. My advice to you would be to begin to document this, to begin to document your husband's – pardon me, to begin to document your ex-husband's threats and to to document who your younger son is. And if the threats from your shitty ex-husband escalate or if your younger son – comes to you and says, tells you that he feels increasingly unsafe in the home of his father, I think 
you may need to lawyer up and attempt to break new legal ground by bringing a preemptory case, by filing for sole custody of both your children and denying him access to them because of his threats to physically harm and sexually traumatize hiring a hooker, sexually traumatize your younger pre-gay, which is what a lot of the uh, sex researchers would call your son, your pre-gay son. There are sex researchers who can testify to the fact that boys like your younger son are most likely going to be gay when they grow up. And there are plenty of LGBT lawyers out there, many of now working on anti-trans bathroom bills, but a few who are working on marriage equality who might be looking for some pro bono groundbreaking case and a case to deny custody, any custody, even partial custody to a violent, bigoted, man who is making threats against his young son who is most likely gay. That may be a case that one of those lawyers are willing to pick up. And I'm happy to put you in touch with some of those lawyers, some of whom I know personally, if this continues to escalate in the short run, as painful as it might be to you. I don't know what kind of a relationship you have with your ex-husband's current dupe fiance, but she clearly doesn't have a problem with gay people. Maybe the two of you working in some sort of concert can cow your shitty ex-husband reaching out to her and saying, you're concerned for your young son. You're not making him gay, but it sure looks like he was born gay and is going to be gay when he grows up. And you worry about what's going on in that house and you need her eyes and you need her help and you need her to run interference for your son when he is with her fiance, your ex-husband. You need her to love your son the way she loves her gay uncle and her gay uncle's partner and to offer what protections that she can to your young son when he is in the house that she shares with your ex-husband. See if you don't have an ally there in her. If it gets worse, call me back. Let me know. I will find you a lawyer. All right, joining me in the studio, we're going to take a quick break from your calls to have a conversation with Rory O'Neill. You may know her better as Panty Bliss, um, who is an A-class cunt, I was just told. <laughs> we asked That's you how my to, preferred you know, term. Preferred yeah. honorific. Yeah. Not HRH, <laughs> HCC. Uh, Panty, of course, uh, became prominent in Ireland by dint of telling the truth on television. Can you run quickly people through what happened to you and, and, and how you rose to international superstar? <laughs> um, I was a reasonably well-known entertainer in Ireland and appeared on a Saturday night chat show when allegedly I referred to some well-known homophobic people as homophobes and they took great exception to that and they sued me and they sued the national Irish national broadcaster and they eventually paid out money to those people to make the you know lawsuits go away. And to the Irish national broadcaster, you called some <laughs> shitty homophobes homophobes. I always called them shitty homophobes. <laughs> yeah, okay. So you called these homophobes homophobes <laughs> and they sued and the Irish national broadcaster settled with them, gave them money yes. and said, okay. Rather than go to court. In, in, taxpayer money. Here, yes, here you go, yes. homophobes. If that happened here, every time I go on television, I talk about who's a shitty homophobe in this country. And if the networks had to pay out... I know, it's insane. It's to do with, well, it was partly to do with our insane, archaic defamation laws. 
And rather than fight it in court, they decided, let's just pay the money. But of course, that really dumped me in the shit, you know, because I didn't have the money to pay it to go away. Not that I would have anyway. But um, So you were sued by these people. And, and let's, yes. we won't name them, but these are people who are campaigning against LGBT civil equality, campaigning yes. against marriage rights, yes. accusing gay people of wanting to destroy marriage, yes. accusing gay people of wanting <laughs> yes. to destroy straight families, of wanting to steal children and ruin yes. their lives. And to describe these people, these shitty homophobes, as homophobes yes, in not Ireland on the na- on to the call airways. the bigot a bigot is bigotry. Yeah. yeah. So it, it's sort of, you know, it was a surreal situation. And then because the national broadcaster paid our taxpayers money, it turned into like a huge debate about free speech, censorship, the role of the national broadcaster, all of that stuff. And it, you know, sort of precipitated a national conversation in Ireland about how Ireland treats LGBT people and you know, all of that stuff, which then led into our referendum on same sex marriage. But what and, happened before that was you, you were the center of that debate about free speech, about homophobia, mm. about how Ireland treats its LGBT children and citizens. And, yeah. and that all sort of was swarming around you and you were being attacked. You gave a speech at the Abbey Theater. God, I love my story when you tell it. Yeah, go <laughs> you on. You gave this amazing speech. The Abbey Theater has this thing called the Noble Call where people come out and yeah. give a little speech after the curtain call yeah. about current events, about current topics. And you were invited in the wake of this huge scandal to give the speech. Mm-hmm. And you gave the speech, which was so moving and so, you know, I, would, I wouldn't have been able to do what you did because – Looking at what you were being put through, looking at what was being done to you and said about you by these shitty bigots, I would have gone out there and just exploded in a rage at them. And you gave this very thoughtful, impassioned speech about homophobia and about mm. your own internalized homophobia and the way the culture just sort of writes that into onto all of us, not just mm. straight people, but gay people too, and how we struggle with that. Uh, I want to play a little clip of it and, and get your thoughts. Okay. <laughs> and so now... Irish gay people, we find ourselves in this ludicrous situation where we are not only not allowed to say publicly what we feel oppressed by, we're not even allowed to think it because the very definition, our definition, has been disallowed by our betters. And for the last three weeks, I've been denounced from the floor of the Oireachtas to newspaper columns to the seething morass of internet commentary denounced for using hate speech because I dare to use the word homophobia and a jumped up queer like me should know that the word homophobia is no longer available to gay people which is a spectacular and neat Orwellian trick because now it turns out that gay people are not the victims of homophobia homophobes are the victims (laughs) of homophobia What happened after you gave that speech? Um, well, I made this speech and thought nothing of it. You know, I had just written it that afternoon and because I thought nobody except the people who were in the auditorium that night would ever hear it. But it was, you know, videoed and put on YouTube the next day and it just immediately went viral. And that sort of added that, you know, that speech then sort of threw fuel on the fire of the whole Pantygate saga, as it was called. Um, and it was a, well for me Wait, personally. Ireland it was an incredible come up thing. with its own scandal suffix. Uh, you had to steal know, I know, gate I know, from Watergate. But Ireland, Pantygate like, is just too these... good. It's too good. <laughs> Pantygate. It's too good. But um, and then um, yeah, it was insane because I didn't think anybody would you know, really have any interest. Certainly outside of Ireland, I thought nobody would have any interest in listening to that speech. 
But it turns out that actually lots of people around the world did have interest in listening to that speech. And, and more bizarrely to me was the fact that, you know, I could understand why maybe some gay people might, you know, identify with it. But it really came as a surprise to me that that other people who feel in any way sort of outside identified with the speech. So I don't know. You know, one of the reasons I think the speech uh, caught fire the, the way that it did was the because you were speaking to what you presumed to be and probably was an overwhelmingly straight audience mm, yeah. about this issue. And you kind of, with the, the, this grace, forgave them for the homophobia that they had all of them had in them. You called them all homophobes. Yes, but after I was including you impact, myself in that Right, too, after yeah. you unpacked your own homophobia and, yeah. and walked them through how you struggle with it and you sort of had them all acknowledge their homophobia and then forgave them for it and credited those who only had a little bit or had worked to overcome it. Mm. And it was just, it was a beautiful speech. And it, the whole scandal and that speech and all of it for me was one of those moments where they don't they don't realize how much things have changed yeah. because the people who were attempting to silence you thought okay here's this guy he's a drag queen he yeah, owns exactly. a bar yeah. he does these crazy shows there's all this video of him doing crazy drag showy things we can beat the fuck out of this guy with impunity we can drag this guy out of the public square and hammer him and no one's going to come to his defense yes. and no one's going to stand with him cuz look at the way he dresses look at what he does for a living yeah and what they don't seem to realize is that people these days like the drag queens a lot more than <laughs> yeah. they like the knuckle dragging asshole don't shitty buggers. With the drag queen. Yeah, you know, <laughs> um, they never learn, do they? And but yeah, that actually is one thing. Because in some ways, I think um, people were th- thought it said something terrible about Ireland, the whole thing that, you know, they can sue you for calling them a homophobe or whatever. But actually, in the bigger scheme of things, it said something great about Ireland. Because what happened in the end is the vast majority of Irish people decided that they were on the side of the big brassy drag queen who used to pull things out of her ass on stage, you know, and we're not on the side of the, you know, the sort of old traditionalist, you know, clergy ridden Ireland, you know. And all of this exploded right before Ireland began a campaign uh, to put civil mar- marriage equality for gays and lesbians, yeah, people like, in same sex relationships up to a vote in Ireland. And this all just fed into it. And you became the public face of the yes vote on marriage equality. Kind of like one of the things that came out of by accident, but that I'm really glad happened was what it did was this, this happened a year before the, the referendum campaign for marriage equality started. But what it did was it forced the country to have this big conversation about homophobia and about Ireland and how it treats its gay citizens and to sort of clear all that out and get air out the dirty laundry before we got to the referendum campaign. So by the time the referendum campaign started, people had already already, chosen sides. Yeah, we'd already sort of put a lot of it away in boxes. So it actually allowed the debate around the referendum to be sort of a cleaner, more focused debate. And how'd that vote turn out? Well, it, uh, the Irish people voted overwhelmingly in favor of same-sex marriage. Yeah. Awesome. Which is a turn up for the books. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and now it looks like Australia, shout out to people listening to Australia. Australia yes. is going to make the mistake of having a vote. But in a way, y- you said last night I came to the premiere of what you're here to talk about. We should probably get to it. <laughs> the Qu- Queen of Ireland. It's a new documentary mm-hmm. film about you. And the filmmakers were following you before panty gate yeah. before the marriage equality vote was even i believe scheduled yeah yeah and so it was kind of a lucky break yes. serendipity for the filmmakers yeah. that suddenly they were following you to do a documentary and you blew up yeah they were thrilled when i got into trouble you know so last night yeah. i was at the I, I was at the seattle international film festival for the north american premiere mm-hmm. of the queen of ireland which is amazing uh directed by connor horgan it's a terrific film uh, about you and it really resonated with me because i think we're about the same age well, so I a lot am. of I'm, I'm I'm sure I'm a little bit younger than you. Do. Oh please, <laughs> I'm 51. Um, 
but you know that thing that the film covers like what it was like to be gay and out in the 80s and having yeah. sex in the 90s and what the culture was like what those clubs were like i lived in the uk i was in ireland a bit in mm. the 80s i remember being there when uh gay sex was still a crime yeah yeah and, and how fun it was to break the law yeah with the cute irish boys um but you said this thing last night about you would go you know someone would call you a fag at a bus stop and there would be people around and you would, you know, we would feel that and we would think, and you know, I've had this thought too, when people be old fag at me that everyone here, all these straight people, they agree. Yeah. And, and then what the vote did was it identified that no, like seven out of 10 of these people are on my side. Yeah, no, exactly. Um, I think to do some, you know, to int- try and introduce marriage equality via referendum, I think is a real risky strategy and it's a dangerous strategy because if you don't get the right result, you might have to wait another generation. You can't just have referendums every week, you know, mm. the same thing. Um, and it's a difficult process. You have to have this giant public debate for six months or whatever. But in another way, the same way they don't realize that the people are, would rather hang out with the fun drag queen and support her than hang out with the shitty knuckle-dragging bigots yes, and absolutely, do their bidding. Yeah. That they don't seem to realize that you know putting this up to a public vote in Ireland, you're going to lose. Putting this up to a public vote in Australia, you're going to lose. Oh, yeah, well, fingers crossed. Yeah, I think so. Um but it is a riskier strategy. Absolutely. Like it's and easier it, to bring it in via, you know, parliament or whatever legislation. It is, but or the shitty bigots are saying, the people, let the people decide, let yes, the people exactly. vote. And it is a riskier strategy, but we've done so much work persuading people, persuading our families, mm-hmm. being out, uh, talking, living our lives as if we had every right that yeah. we deserve. And then it makes giving us those rights seem less scary because we're already out in the yeah. world having relationships and starting families. Um, I think, you know, you know, and it's a galling strategy because other people's rights aren't subjected to referendum. Yes, nobody else is expected to sort of argue, you know, you know, for their own right to the you know, basic rights. You know, it's only gay people have been asked to go around knocking on doors. And there was a terrific ad in the Ireland campaign where somebody went door to door knocking on yeah, doors is, asking yeah. for permission to marry not yeah. his boyfriend, but his girlfriend yeah. to try to communicate to straight people how galling it would yeah. be to be placed in this position. But the thing then about doing by referendum is even though I do think it's risky and we shouldn't have to, if you do get the right result, it's actually much more powerful because people can't carp afterwards that, oh, it was only an elite politicians who brought this in mm-hmm. or whatever. You know, actually, no, everybody got together and debated it endlessly for six months and then decided and everybody decided that they're fine with it. And that actually does have a sort of a much more power effect than I uh, had anticipated because I think in Ireland now, the gay community, they just feel much more secure in their sort of place in Irish society in a way that they never did before the vote because the vote has sort of reinforced the fact that actually Ireland is fine with queers. The film is The Queen of Ireland. The subject is Panty Bliss, a.k.a. Rory O'Neill. We like to, when people come on the show to talk about films or whatever they're doing, we like to throw a couple of our sex questions at them. And we like to give sex I, advice. I'm very good at sex. And you're probably very good at sex advice. <laughs> I did drag for 10 years and I found like a lot of people when you're a drag queen in a gay bar will come up to you and ask you for advice. Well, what I always say that is amazing when you're in drag in public, the things that people will tell you, like really intimate things that they would never normally tell a stranger. And I think they do it because part of them, you know, sees you dressed up in drag, you know, it's it sort of... You, you'll put yourself lower on the social ladders that they have. Do you know what I mean? They think this person will not be shocked by anything that I tell them because this is, you know, a bloke who has in a way, well, demeaned himself by dressing up as a woman because that's how the culture sees it. You know, the culture sees women as weaker. So a man dressing up as a woman seems to have demeaned himself. I, I but see that allows him to say anything to you. I see it differently. I see a dude in a, uh, I see a, dude in a dress. I see a, a, a gay guy doing drag, a drag queen in a gay bar yeah. as someone who has said, 
I am not competing tonight. I am not trying to get into your pants. <laughs> I'm not in competition with you for any dick that's here. Yeah. I am outside of the maelstrom. I'm outside of the competition. So I'm safe to talk to. Because yeah. I obviously wouldn't be here dressed like this if I was trying to get laid. But like, you know, but even like straight women will tell you things by the time they, you know, finger their cousin that's you know, on camp or something, you know, <laughs> you know, whatever, you know, and, and they would never normally tell a stranger that. But they kind of think this, you know, dude in a dress is not going to be shocked by the fact that I I fingered my cousin. Do you know what I mean? Did that shock you when you heard that? No, God, I was excited. What does that, does that anything shock you? <laughs> no. You know, has, I, has well, certainly when it comes to sex, I have, you know. Has your mother seen Queen of Ireland? She has, yes. Was she yeah. shocked when the pearls were being... I haven't asked her, and she hasn't mentioned it. But she knew about that anyway, you know. You'll have to yeah, see the I film to find secrets. out what I mean by the pearls being dot, dot, dot. <laughs> There's a pearls scene. Yeah. Um, no, my parents are just, I, I think they... They they acknowledge what they want to acknowledge, and they just let the rest slide by. <laughs> um, your mom reminds me of my mom. My mom used to say, there are things a mother has a right not to know. <laughs> she wanted me to edit for her. So let's take a question. Hey, Dan. I love your show. My question is maybe a bit cliche, but I really need help and thought I would try and get your advice. So here's my problem. I'm a gay man living with my conservative father who's not aware that I'm gay. I would like to tell him at some point, but it seems that every day I dig myself deeper and deeper into a hole. I'm just worried about the outcome of me telling him, being that I'm pretty dependent on him financially and otherwise. He constantly makes homophobic jokes and remarks, and I can never reason with him. He doesn't seem like he can be changed. So my question is, how should I go about this? Should I tell him at all? And if I tell him, what is the best route I should take? In your capacity, Panty Puss, yeah. in that gay bar in Dublin, you must have given advice to young gay kids who yes. live with homophobic parents. This, Well, actually, um, the fact that he lives with him makes it slightly different because I, I will say that the, the best way to come out to your parents used to be, we're slightly being overtaken by technology, is to write them a letter. Um, people sometimes think that's your wimping out, you have to do it face to face. But actually, a letter is the perfect way because it allows you, first of all, time to say it exactly how you want to say it. And then it allows them to get the information, take it in, and ha but they don't have to respond immediately. And Because if they do have to respond immediately at the dinner table or something, they're bound to say something that they wouldn't have said if they had a little time for it to settle in. They'll say something that comes out wrong, then you'll get up on your big gay high horse and you'll be you know, angry with your dad. And, and there's a back and forth when it has to happen all, all sort of immediately. And I always say to the gays too, you know, it probably took you five, ten years to come to terms with your sexuality, but you expect your poor dad to come to come to terms with it in a split second over the fucking Christmas dinner, you know, uh -huh. you know, so, so I say the letter is the best way. It's, you know, it's not a wimp out. It's the, like the, the, it's the best way. The complicating factor here is that he with lives dad with and him. financially dependent upon him. Well, you know, listen, I think that the vast majority of cases, parents respond better than you think they're going to. And if your dad is going to, you know, cut you out of the, 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 his financial support or the will or whatever it is, because you come out as gay, well, I don't know, get a job. <laughs> like, you know, it's a hard situation and I, you know, you know what I feel for the guy, but you know, there are some times in your life when you got to sort of what well, use a sexist phrase, man up about it. Um, we like and say, I, we and like I to suspect, say ovary up about it or, or gonad up about it. I suspect that his dad will respond better than he, th than he fears because that's usually the case. Like my dad used to describe people as queer and I was terribly worried about that. But of course, he never meant anything about it. It was just his generation. Mine and when too. I came out, he was totally fine with me being queer. I, th I sometimes encounter people who I think inflate how the, the reaction they fear that they're going to get from their parents. 
because it gives them permission not to come out to them, not to do the mm. hard work of coming out to them. Yeah. Because, oh, the de- my parents are going to blow up. They're going to explode. They won't be able to handle it. Yeah. And it's kind of a, an excuse. It's kind of a dodge. Yeah. And it's also – it's a, it's a you know, weighing up thing. Is telling your dad and him possibly having a bad reaction, is that actually worse than living with your dad and him knowing nothing about your real self or your, your private life and you're constantly having to lie to him? Is that, is that situation now actually better than what it might be if he has a bad reaction for and a while? And you might get what I got when I came out to my dad who said plenty of homophobic things when I was growing up because he's an Irish Catholic cop in the north side of Chicago, worked the gay neighborhood at a time. Oh my God, your dad is so hot. It was a terrible <laughs> place. Um, and what I got when he came out were a lot of apologies for the things he'd said when mm. I was young that he didn't remember saying. And he yeah. wanted to know why I was so afraid to tell him. And I was like, well, because you said this and this and this and this and this. And those things were etched on me. Yeah. And he couldn't even Yeah, because my recall. dad did not bat an eyelid from the first second. It just didn't make any difference to him. And then, you know, sometime later, I say, you know, in conversation, you used to describe people as queer. Like, I remember, and he, his attitude was, well, well, you know, when I was growing up, queer just kind of meant odd and weird. And to me, you know, I didn't know any gay people. So a gay person to me was odd, you know, or unusual. So he never met, had any malice. It was just, they were queer. Hi, Dan. I'm a 34-year-old straight woman. I recently went on a couple of dates with a guy. We met online, and I felt very comfortable talking to him before we ever met in person. We finally met up, and it was great. The conversation was easy and natural, and we had a strong physical connection. After our second date, he invited me back to his place, and I went. We had a lot of fun making out, and eventually it led to more. While I was giving him a blowjob, I started to play with his ass. He seemed to like it and even stopped me so I could get, so he could get lube. So I kept going. I used one finger on his ass while I gave him a blowjob. I asked him at least three times if he wanted me to stop, and he said no. After, he said he was glad he tried it because he always wanted to, but never had a partner who was willing. In the morning when we woke, he told me that he had decided he really didn't like it and wasn't interested in doing it again. I said that was fine and we wouldn't have to. Later that day, he said he had a headache and didn't feel good, so I brushed it off as too much drinking the night before and lack of sleep. The following day, he told me that he was embarrassed and felt awkward about what happened. He also said that he had been feeling ill and there was a small amount of blood in his stool the previous day. I felt awful and apologized multiple times. He continued to say that he just isn't sure how he feels about me and needs to get back to feeling normal and is in the right headspace to figure out if he wants to see me again. He also kept saying that he really felt very uncomfortable and very embarrassed about what I did. I know this wasn't something I should have tried with a new partner right away. Totally my bad and not something I ever do on the first go around. But it wasn't aggressive or forceful, and I even asked him multiple times if he wanted if he wanted me to stop. I feel awful, and I'm not really sure what my response to his feeling should be. He's made me feel like I violated him in some way, but he's not acknowledging that he had a say in what was happening. I'm interested to get your thoughts. So let's pretend this is a straight girl who just walked up to you into the bar and unpacked all that. My God, I'd be like, God, move on. Well, you, you, this is all over a finger up the butt that he wanted and loved, and he went off and got the lube and for her. And, and she asked know, four times. Yeah, like she sounds like a really fun girl, and he <laughs> well, he is lucky to have her. If you know, if he doesn't appreciate you, girl, go. There's a lot of other guys out there who will appreciate an open-minded, adventurous girl like yourself. You know what that whole story reminded me of. Not having opposite sex sex or straight sex in the 80s, but having sex as a gay man with a closeted kid 
in the eighties. Yes. The next day, like they went out, they got drunk. Do you want to do this? Do you want to do this? Yes, yes, yes. Fuck the shit out of me. Fuck the shit out of me. And then the next wakes up in the morning, decides he didn't really like it, regrets doing yeah. it, has this big fucking meltdown. This guy is like a cliche closeted fag from nineteen eighty four. Totally is. It's just so bizarre that, you know, one finger up the butt can, you know, can give somebody such, you know, psychic trouble. I mean, it's just, it's nuts. You know, no, you know, she's great. He, he, he's the one with the issue here. It's also so weird, isn't it? I mean, I don't want to take this small thing and go too wide with it, but it's just so weird, isn't it? That guys, straight guys have such hangups about something up the butt as if it's going to emasculate them. You know, I think there's a switch up there that it could be accidentally flipped. It's going to turn gay. Yeah, you're going to be gay just because you had your finger up your butt. The only thing is, she probably should have, you know, um, clipped those nails because that probably explains the little blood (laughs) in the stool. But that aside, next time, slip a condom over that finger. (laughs) And that aside, take off the engagement ring. If you're using that finger. Hey, Dan, this is Castillo. Um, I live in Boston. Anyway, I was reading my Facebook news feed and I saw this woman, Stacy Dash or something. It said that trans people should pee in the bushes. Well, I thought that as a, I don't know, good fuck you, we could all find her address and shit in her bushes. So anyway, spread the word. If someone can find her address, I'll be the first one to go ahead and shit in her bushes. It's a good idea. In fact, it's an idea I've had a couple of times. I suggested uh, a long time ago that trans people start dropping off jars of urine in the offices of state legislators who are pushing anti-trans bathroom bills for safe. Dis- if we can't be trusted in bathrooms, here, you carry this the rest of the way in. You pour it into the toilet. Um, and after North Carolina passed their anti-trans bill, I said we should drop off bottles of urine at the governor of North Carolina. So, yeah, Stacey Dash, Fox News talking head. We should probably drop off some bottles of urine, not shit in her bushes, but some bottles of urine in her place for safe disposal. The reason I played this call for you and what I wanted to ask you about um, is we've had this tremendous backlash in the United States Mm. after Obergefell, after the decision legalizing same-sex marriage in all 50 states. And the target of the backlash has been trans people Mm. because the shit they used to say about gay men – can't trust us around kids. We yeah. work in bathrooms. We're preying on children. Panic, panic, panic. They can't get away with saying it about us anymore. So yeah. they're saying that same shit about trans people and pushing all this anti-trans yeah. legislation. Has there been a similar backlash in Ireland of any sort? No, is the straight answer. Of course, um, trans issues, you know, have sort of come to the fore more. Um, mostly, I would say, influenced by what's happening in the U.S. Um, but... Um, no, nobody would have a, there's been no bathroom bills or anything like that. No. Because watching the documentary, there's a moment in it where you say, and I'm going to badly paraphrase you here, I'm sorry. Um, you know, with this achievement, with this win, with marriage equality, we're mm-hmm. kind of done. We've gotten everything. Mm-hmm. And you can't say that here in the United yeah. States because it's not true. Mm. And I think once the film plays widely here and it should, and everyone should see it, you might get a little grief from some of the LGBTQ. LFTS, Q again, IA community here for just that statement because it's not true here. I see. Yeah. Well, I mean, of course, to be clear, what I was talking about was legislative equality. That is a done deal at home. Because you Uh, have anti-workplace discrimination protections, you have marriage equality, you have uh, rights as parents. Trans people are protected from discrimination under the law in Ireland. There's a lot that Ireland has nailed down that we're still fighting for. We don't have anti-discrimination protections here nationally. Yeah. 
And you do in Ireland. Well, you know, but I would say, of course, that that doesn't mean the work in Ireland is totally done because, of course, you know, the man on the street it takes a while to catch up. You know, so, so. Well, the measure of a culture isn't are there no bigots, but how the culture responds when bigotry manifests. Yeah. Does the government excuse it, encourage it, participate in it, yeah. or is it punished? Is it penalized? So, you know, there's always going to be racist, always going to be sexist, always going to be homophobes, always going to be anti-Semites. What you don't want to see is the government being racist, sexist, anti-Semitic or homophobic. Yeah. And, you know, I think like, for example, it'll always be difficult to be coming out as gay when you're a teenager in school or whatever. So there's still a lot of work to be done there. But legislatively, it's Mm -hmm. sort of a a done deal in Ireland. Um, and why why are you guys not having the backlash? We, I always say that Canada got the French, Australia got the convicts, and we got the Puritans, and that's why. Well, I think we haven't – I'm not saying the backlash won't come, but I think um, the reason that we don't have it yet or it hasn't been in any way strong is partly – it's the same reason that the referendum passed at home. Ireland is much smaller. It is very much still made up of very tight-knit small communities and sort of family base. And when it came down to the vote, even older, you know, traditional grannies, they ended up voting yes because they did not want to vote against your man next door or the guy who cuts their hair or their cousin or their, you know, their, their nephew and his boyfriend or their, or their neighbor's all grandson. That stuff. So I, it's impossible. That's our secret weapon. We come out into families. Coming out is the most to... powerful thing. Exactly. It changes everybody's mind. And, and so it is impossible to live in Ireland and not know a few queers and to know them on a personal basis. But I think it's quite possible to live in, you know, various parts of the United Nebraska. States, in you know, North Carolina or whatever, and, and not know a single queer. I mean, I think that's possible. And not knowing queer people is what, you know, drives homophobia. Because it's you, so you, sad. You're so deprived if you don't know queer people. Exactly. Who's going to tell you you can get a finger in your ass without yeah. turning gay the next day <laughs> if you don't know a gay guy who can tell you that it doesn't work that way? Who's going to make you the best cupcakes? <laughs> who are you going to talk to in the gay bar? <laughs> yeah. Rory... O'Neill, Panty, Bliss, it's such a pleasure to finally meet yes, you. Yes, a pleasure to yeah, finally you, meet you. Following you since, since, really since the Abbey speech, um, which was, as some have said, the finest speech in the English language in a hundred years. Some people have also said that trans people shouldn't use the bathrooms that they want to. So <laughs> some people aren't so always yeah. right. <laughs> some people are right about you. And if you haven't seen uh, the speech at the Abbey Theater, you should look it up. The Panty Bliss Noble Call. Just Google that. And you should definitely go see Queen of Ireland, the new documentary about Rory O'Neill, a.k.a. Panty Bliss, that is hitting the festival circuit now and will hopefully be getting a theatrical release soon. There you go. And you can also send me checks. <laughs> well, we want to get you to come and perform in Seattle. We know that you yes. come to New York every once in a while. We need to get yeah. you out of the West Coast. Yes, I'd love to. This is my first time to Seattle, and it's gorgeous. Hi, Dan. Um, lady on the East Coast. Married 22 years, very sex-positive marriage, two daughters, one is 11, very girly, quote-unquote normal, not sound fast, but you know what I mean. The other one is 13, and I can tell she's questioning a lot of things about herself. I would not be surprised if she was bi or even gay. She's been changing lots of things about her appearance, her taste, and everything else. Um, it's a process for my husband and I, but we're fine with it. I work in an environment that has a lot of gay people, so it's not anything new for her or family or me. My problem is with my 11-year-old, and it's breaking my heart. She is just awful to her sister. She will make comments to her that she looks terrible because of her hair, and it embarrasses her because of what her sister looks like, and that she's embarrassed to be with her. And honestly, she's just acting like a witch. And not only does it break my heart as a mom, as far as a sibling bond, 
and I know puberty has something to do with it. But I just don't want my oldest daughter to think that if she is gay, she's an embarrassment and a source of shame to her sister. And I keep trying to explain this to my 11-year-old, who's very mature for some things, awful for other things. I'm not getting anywhere. And I was just wondering if maybe you have some insight, because I'm losing it. I just, it just makes me stick to my stomach. So the way this works around here is the tech-savvy at-risk youth listen to all the calls, and they write short, like, two, three-sentence synopses of all the calls with a little title, and then they send me the lists of all the calls, and I pick the calls we're going to respond to. And the short little title that the tech-savvy at-risk youth gave this particular call, Nasty Sister Needs a Slap, figuratively. We are not literally urging any parent to ever physically abuse or harm or spank or slap a child. But that was the consensus of the, among the tech savvy at risk youth that the appropriate response here would be a figurative, not literal slap. I have one question though, that I think you need to put to the 11 year old before you come down on her like 10 tons of shit, which is what you're going to have to do and keep doing until this stops. You need to ask her if she is being bullied because of her sister's appearance. If they go to the same school, if they go to the same parks, if they're in the same community, is she being picked on by her friends, by her peers? Is she being bullied because her older sister is a dyke, potentially, or genderqueer, or trans, or whatever? Is she being picked on because her older sister's non-gender conforming? It is often the case that younger siblings of obviously gay or lesbian, or trans kids come in for bullying and abuse as well. And sometimes those kids, instead of being angry at the bully or bullies, are angry at the sibling, the older sibling. There was a case here in Washington State a few years ago where this kid's younger siblings were being picked on because he was gay and he felt so terrible about it, he killed himself. It was utterly heartbreaking. So my first recommendation before the figurative slap is to reach out to the 11-year-old. Where is this coming from? Are you being bullied? Are you being picked on? Why are you so angry? Why does this matter so much to you? And if the answer is not being bullied, just she is a bully, then you got to come down on her. And don't come down on her with the expectation that one word, one confrontation, one 10 tons of shit falling on her <laughs> that mom pulled the lever on is going to fix it. It probably won't. 11, 12-year-old, 13-year-old girls and boys can be real relentless shits to their siblings. What matters to your older child is not you can make this stop. What matters to your older child is seeing you intervene, even if you have to intervene again and again and again and again, because what you're communicating to your older child is that the way she's being treated by her younger sibling is unacceptable and that there are adults in the world who can see that it's unacceptable, can see the injustice and will do something about it. Not that you have to fix it or solve it or prevent it from ever happening again. Prevent. How do you prevent 11 and 13 year old siblings from being shitty to each other some of the time? But if one is being relentlessly bullyingly shitty to another, and sometimes the bullying does go from younger to older. Your kid, the bullied kid, needs to see action being taken, even if it doesn't fix it or solve it in the short run. It'll help that older kid in the long run, and hopefully in the shortish long run, it'll help the younger kid 
get the fuck over it and stop policing her sibling for her gender expression. I got no question for this guy. I just want him to see now after this mass shooting in Orlando, Florida, 50 dead, how he, how he can still freely want the borders to be open and give every damn body that comes in this country citizenship. Look at it, Dan. You know, it's about time something was done. This is why people want Donald Trump. They get your type people and your sorry ass out of the media and out of politics. The deranged, perhaps self-hating, closet case, lunatic, religious conservative, pickled by religion, nut bag, who shot up Pulse in Orlando was an American citizen, not an immigrant. An American citizen born in New York, not too far, short drive from the same place where Donald J. Trump was born. So building walls and closing borders and racism and demagoguery and Islamophobia, none of that really would have protected anyone at Pulse from the deranged lunatic who shot Pulse up. What might have protected people at Pulse from that deranged lunatic were laws preventing people on the terrorism watch list, on the no-fly list, people who've been interviewed by the FBI about their connections to or sympathies for ISIS from buying fucking guns and perhaps laws that prevent all Americans from owning weapons of war like the gun, the deranged monster that shot up Pulse carried in with him that Saturday night. When I was – this caller is referencing something I said on Bill Maher where we were having a heated discussion and I misspoke slightly about illegal immigrants or undocumented immigrants, people who are in this country, the 11 million people who are in this country and are undocumented. Some of them, people who are brought here as young children, the vast and overwhelming majority of them, decent, law-abiding, respected, contributing members of their community who have never harmed anyone – we're having an argument about what to do about them, and I said, give them citizenship. And I stand by that. The dreamers, the 11 million people who have been living in the United States contributing, they put more in taxes into our government, into services for everyone else than they take out. I think those people should be given not a path to citizenship, but citizenship. Amnesty. You know who else thought that we should do that for people who are here in the country? Undocumented, a.k.a. as right-wing lunatics prefer to say illegally, Ronald fucking Reagan. Ronald Reagan granted citizenship to millions of undocumented immigrants in this country in the 1980s. It was good enough for Ronald fucking Reagan. I don't see why it's not good enough for you, sir. Good enough for St. Ronald Reagan. Ronald Reagan, who also raised taxes. A lot of what Ronald Reagan actually did has been stuffed down the memory hole by the Ronald Reagan zombie humpers out there who are legion and most of them voting for Donald Trump, which I will not be doing because I am not an idiot, because I am not persuaded by fear mongers and demagogues, because I see the real problem, which is hate. And you don't solve hate by ladling more hate up on top of it. And we need to remember one of the shooters at San Bernardino, an American citizen, Adam Lanza, who shot up Sandy Hook Elementary School, an American citizen, the person who shot up Fort Hood, an American citizen. So 
pointing a finger at immigrants and screaming and yelling about the threat they pose is right up there with pointing a finger at trans people and screaming and yelling about the threat that they supposedly pose in bathrooms. They are not the problem. Guns are the problem. Religious extremism is the problem. Homophobia, which is promoted by not just Islam, but also Christianity. We had preachers all over YouTube this weekend celebrating the murder, celebrating the massacre at Pulse. We had Pat Robertson on the television celebrating the massacre at Pulse. Pat Robertson is not an imam. Pat Robertson is an asshole, but a Christian asshole and an American citizen asshole. And I don't vote for or support assholes. And I'm not voting for that asshole, Donald Trump. And this not only doesn't change anything, what happened at Pulse, doesn't change anything for me, reinforces what I already believe. Guns are the problem. Hate are the problem. Walls and attacking immigrants and attacking vulnerable minority communities in this country won't fix it, won't solve anything, will only make it worse. Hi, Dan. Uh, I just wanted to comment on you know this thing that people talk about society being post-gay bars and there's places on the internet for that now and you have apps well yeah okay that's fine if you're a gay man i'm in the early stages of coming out as a trans woman and there's never going to be an app that replaces the feeling of walking into a gay bar that treats me as a woman from the second i walk in and no one misgenders me, no one rolls their eyes at me, no one treats me like a freak. And so, yeah, there are apps to replace the hookup culture of gay bars, but there are things that Grindr is never going to replace about them. Hey, Dan, I was calling about the uh, woman on episode 503 with the boyfriend who feels that She's on strike um, and that she's withholding sex. Sweetie, you need to break up. Like, I cannot stress enough that this relationship is over. You're looking for comfort where it doesn't exist. He is looking for the door out and he's trying to make it on you, sweetie. So you need to just come to terms with the fact that he's unhappy you obviously are just pissed off, but I can tell, and I'm not an expert a mile away, that this relationship needs to come to a screeching halt right now. Hi, this is in response to the woman who was in the relationship with the man who only wanted to play video games and not spend time with her. I just wanted to tell you, I've been in your shoes before, a few times actually, and I have anxiety and depression. I got into and stayed in relationships that didn't work for me. They didn't want to spend time with me. They didn't want to go out and do things. They didn't appreciate me. I got in them and I stayed in them because it was scary to be alone when you have a giant thing like depression and anxiety on your shoulders. But when I got the courage to end these relationships, each time I learned something about being alone, I wasn't nearly as lonely as being coupled with the wrong person. I started this thing where I started to treat myself exactly how I would want my significant others to treat me. I took myself on dates. I appreciated my own time. And then it wasn't so lonely. I think this helped me build healthier relationships with my next partners and taught me what I should be treated like. So if I wasn't, I could scram. So I just wanted to say good luck and you're not alone because you have yourself first and foremost. 
And we're going to leave it there. 206-302-2064 is the number here at the Savage Lovecast. If you want to record a question or comment for a future show, give us a buzz. 206-302-2064. Follow me on Twitter at FakeDanSavage. Follow Panty Bliss on Twitter at Panty Bliss. That's Panty spelled with an I. The Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian and me and the tech-savvy at-risk youth and Nancy. We will all be back at you next week with another installment of the Savage Lovecast. Thanks for downloading.